following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. In this session, we're carrying on our series in the book of Judges. And today we are looking at Judges chapter 4. Now, Judges 4 and 5 are really one unit in the book of Judges. Uh, chapter 4 is a story, the story of Deborah and Barak and a woman called Jael. And then in chapter 5, you have a song based on the story, which recalls the same events, but it's obviously much more poetic and lyrical at that stage. So we're going to concentrate today on chapter 4, which is the story itself. Chapter 4 begins another cycle in the life of Israel, another cycle of a new judge coming to the fore. Israel again rebels against God. God again hands Israel over to one of its enemies, uh, this time the Canaanites. And Israel is cruelly oppressed by the Canaanites for many years. The king of Canaan is a guy called Jabin, and the leader of his army is a guy called Sisera. So Israel is oppressed under these conditions, and from that, that place of servitude and oppression... They cry out to God for deliverance and for help. And once again, God hears them. And once again, He intervenes to save them. The way that God does this in this particular story is that He speaks through a woman named Deborah. Now, Deborah, part of her role is that she's a prophetess. So she is one of the people in Israel who receives a direct word from the Lord and communicates that word to God's people directly. She also has some kind of judicial role within Israel. So she's judging uh, disputes and settling different cases that are brought to her. And as well as that, she has an overall overarching leadership role within Israel. So she is functioning effectively as a prime minister of Israel during this time in the nation's history. So God speaks to Deborah. And Deborah summons one of the military generals of Israel, this guy named Barak, whose name means lightning. She summons him and she gives him, on behalf of God, she gives him the clear battle plan for how the Canaanites are going to be defeated. And what really emerges from this story is the theme of courage. It's a story about God and it's a story about courage. Each of the three main players in this story, Deborah and Barak and Jael, they are all distinguished by either their courage or their lack of courage. Now, we'll start with the negative example first. I want to look at each of these three people. We'll start with the weakest example first, which is this guy, Barak, because he really doesn't demonstrate a lot of courage, and there are some reasons for this. Deborah articulates God's word and God's plan to Barak and tells him how the Canaanites are going to be overcome. And Barak's response is interesting. In verse 8, he says this, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. So straight away here, it seems like Barak is not a man full of courage at all. He seems a pretty weak-willed kind of guy. All of his confidence rests on Deborah. All of his strength is tied to her. Her presence with him is what's going to make the difference. His, his identity or his sense of confidence is tied to her inspiring words. Later on, she's going to give him another pep talk, another rev up to try and help him have the courage that he needs. But he really doesn't seem to have a lot of confidence, a lot of courage within himself. The reason for this, I think, as it unfolds during the story, is clear from this reality. In the, in the whole chapter of Judges chapter 4, Barak never once mentions God's name. All of the times in this chapter that God is mentioned, that the Lord is mentioned, it all comes from Deborah. 
She's the one who is bringing God and God's name into the situation, but Barak just doesn't mention it. It's like the story of God has not properly been passed on to Barak, or he doesn't have an appreciation of how God has worked and what God is doing in the life of Israel. Barak seems to really lack a grounding in the story of God's faithfulness, and that is the source of real courage. Courage needs a story. Courage needs to be steeped in the story of God's faithfulness. That's what Barak desperately needs, is he needs to be immersed in the wonderful story of God's mighty deeds on behalf of Israel. The story of God rescuing his people from Egypt and then all the subsequent victories that God has already won and all the peoples that he has driven out in order to generate this courage within Barak that God's going to do exactly what he's promised to do. And it's not only a courage or a confidence in God's past faithfulness that Barak needs. He also needs a courage in God's future faithfulness. You look at what Deborah says to him later on as they're, as they're poised to strike uh, the, the Canaanites. Deborah says in verse 14, Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? It's a wonderful thought, isn't it? That God has not only been present and faithful up to this point, but God has also gone ahead of Barak, ahead of his army, into this battle, into this situation. God talks about handing the, handing the Canaanites over to Israel as if it's already an accomplished reality. Have I not already handed them over to you? God's gone ahead of them into that situation. Shouldn't that give us some courage in the situations that we face, to know that God has already gone ahead of you into those situations that you're fearing? God's gone ahead of you into that difficult conversation that you're worried about having. God's gone ahead of you into that tough call that you're not sure how to make and you don't know which path is the right one. God's already gone ahead of you into that situation. God's gone ahead of you into the uncertainties that you feel about where your work is going to end up or how your finances are going to be or where this relationship's going to go. God's already gone ahead of you. He's already inhabiting that future and He is making it a safe place for you. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but God is making it a safe place for you to inhabit. That's where courage starts to spring from. As we can look back and see the past faithfulness of God in our lives and supremely in Jesus. And we see the future faithfulness of God. We anticipate the future faithfulness of God through that assurance that He's already gone ahead of us. And He comes to us and says, I've made the future a safe place for you. Now let me take your hand and walk with you into it. It's a source of tremendous courage and Barak doesn't seem to have it because he's not immersed in the story of God's faithfulness. So let's circle back to Deborah because she's really the shining example in this chapter of what real courage looks like. Look at the first words out of Deborah's mouth here in verse 6. She summons Barak and she says to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. You notice she doesn't say, I command you. She doesn't say, your leader commands you. She doesn't try and use her own title. She just says to Barak, the Lord. She's quite content to simply receive what God's wanting to say and pass that on to Barak. It doesn't have to be her agenda. She doesn't need to control the situation. She doesn't need to manipulate the situation. She's quite comfortable saying this is what God has said. She doesn't feel the need to go into battle with Barak. Deborah's got no intention initially of accompanying Barak into battle. She doesn't need that honor. She doesn't need that fame. She doesn't need that glory. She's comfortable enough in who she is to send him out into the battle and have it done that way. She's even able to be a little bit self-deprecating. When Barak says, I'm only going to go if you go with me, Deborah says, okay, well, just so you know, God's going to deliver you into the hands of a woman. 
She's even able to, to, to make light of her own social standing in a, in a heavily patriarchal culture. Deborah seems to me to be a very secure woman. She's secure in who she is. She doesn't need to try and control the situation, clutch the reins of what's going on. She doesn't need to try and protect her own reputation or her own power base. She is just secure in who she is with God and before God. And out of that, she does demonstrate incredible courage. I think this is a paradox of courage in Scripture, is that it comes out of an unlikely place. Courage, real courage, doesn't come from strength and confidence in ourselves. It comes, in fact, from brokenness. It comes out of humility. It comes out of vulnerability. It comes even out of weakness. See, we tend to want to be strong people. You think about those situations in which you want to have courage, you want to have confidence in this particular meeting at work, you're intimidated by these people, you want to be courageous, you want to be confident or confident in this conversation that you've got to have. We try and summon it up, don't we? We try and muster courage, confidence from somewhere, from within, from outside, whatever. We try, it's like trying to suck a thick shake through a straw, you know, trying to try and get this confidence going. And so often it doesn't really work. We kind of have some pretense of confidence, but inside we're a trembling wreck. And to most people that are looking on, they can see through the guys and they realize we're not nearly as confident as we pretend to be. We're not much good at summoning up courage. Courage, I think, comes from acknowledging that we're not courageous at all. Courage and confidence, I think, comes from acknowledging we're not confident. We're not nearly as confident as we want people to think that we are. I remember when I first came into pastoral ministry, and I wanted to be a confident leader. I wanted to have great plans for the church and plans for the ministries in the church. I wanted to have answers to people's theological questions. I wanted to have solutions to people's personal problems, to have all these things that I could dispense and offer people. I tried to preach with the strong voice of pastoral authority so that people would listen. I wanted to be the confident leader. And as I look back over the course of 10 or so years now in pastoral ministry, I think God has gradually broken me down and made me realize I don't have as many plans as I thought I did. I don't have nearly as many answers as I tried to make out that I had. I've got more questions these days than I have answers, and that's okay. I don't have nearly as many solutions for people's personal problems as I wanted to have or thought that I had. And God is slowly teaching me to listen more to people and to listen more to Him and to be content with not having answers and not trying to get myself into the tall grass with people and going around in circles and great theological debates with people that don't really connect to people's lives. God has taught me to be confident with my own weakness and my own brokenness and being prepared to be a little bit vulnerable with it. Even in saying some of these things, you know, part of the reason that I'm saying some of these things is because I want people to be impressed with my humility, which is just another form of pride, isn't it? That false humility. We want people to see, oh, what a humble person that he's willing to confess this or that. Even my motives in saying these things to you are mixed because I struggle with this stuff and I wrestle with this stuff. And I don't always have the plans, the answers, the solutions that I once wanted to have. But I'm finding that there's a huge freedom in not having all the plans and the answers and the solutions, and not having to try and be someone, not having to try and be something that I'm not, put on some particular mask 
or project some image of myself to be a particular type of pastor or leader or whatever. You know, when you can put down that mask, when you can be comfortable with who you are and secure in your identity in Jesus, is an amazing freedom. There's an incredibly liberating feeling that comes from not having to project this kind of false confidence but you're able to be simply who God's created you to be. And that is the source of true courage. And it means that when you come to particular decisions and there's a path to choose or there's a decision to make, you don't have to be racked with anxiety over what people are going to think of you or what the consequences are going to be. Yes, you can listen to people's voices. Yes, you can be informed by the circumstances around you. But when you can embrace your own brokenness and when you're prepared to be a little bit more vulnerable with other people, you don't need to live and die by the opinions of other people. You just don't. You don't need to worry so much about what other people think of you when you've already confessed to them that you're the chief of sinners, right? You don't need to worry about damage to your reputation, or loss of standing in some people's eyes, when you know that your vindication doesn't come ultimately from people, it comes from God. And this is a lifetime journey. You can't just turn this on like a switch. This is a process of, over time, becoming more secure in our identity in Jesus Christ, receiving His unconditional love and acceptance in our lives, And getting rid of that proclivity we have to try and project a false self to the world, to try and be the man or the woman to whatever circle of people that we're in. People can see it a mile off anyway. They're probably already seeing through that guise that you're putting on. So just give it up and follow Deborah's example in being comfortable in who you are, in all of your weakness, all of your brokenness. Be real about that with God. Be real about that with some other people. And you'll find that's a spacious place of freedom. And it's, in the end, a strong foundation from which real courage is born. The greatest example of this, I think, has got to be Jesus. You look at Jesus on the cross. All this talk that we have of courage, what it means to be a courageous person, ultimately, that's got to lead us to Jesus, doesn't it? I think when you see Jesus on the cross, you are seeing the most pure form of courage. Man, it doesn't look anything like what our cultured society would define as courage. But as you look at that man, Jesus of Nazareth, hanging on the cross, you are seeing courage in its truest and its purest form. First Peter describes it this way. He said, when he, that's Jesus, when he suffered, he made no threats. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges Justly. I love that verse. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus didn't try to control the situation of his own crucifixion. Could have tried to. He didn't. Didn't try and grab the reins. Didn't try and manipulate it. Didn't try and cling to power. Didn't worry about his own reputation. He simply entrusted himself to the one, to his heavenly father, who judges justly and allowed God's will to be done. In that situation. That means exercising courage and trusting God with what the outcome of that is going to be. 
It means recognizing that there will be implications, that there'll sometimes be negativity. Things won't always go that well. In retrospect, maybe you didn't make the right decision, but it means that you trust God with the outcome. You do the best you can prayerfully and carefully, and you embrace your own weakness before God and other people. That's the source of real courage. Well, finally, let's look at this other mysterious woman, J.L., And this is where the story really gets quite gruesome. Once Barak and his forces have overcome the Canaanites, the Canaanite general Sisera flees on foot. He takes off and he finds refuge among these tent people, the Kenites. Now the critical mistake that he makes is that he assumes the Kenites are friendly people because they have an alliance with the Canaanites or the king of Canaan. What he doesn't realize, though, is the tent people that he stumbled across are a breakaway group of the Kenites, and they don't necessarily share the same allegiances. So he's welcomed by this woman, Jael. And she says, come in, come in, my Lord. And he wants something to drink. She gives him milk. He wants somewhere to rest. She gives him a bed. And he assumes everything's fine, and he's found a safe place to uh, regather his strength. But as he lies there sleeping, Jael comes along with a tent peg and a hammer and drives this tent peg through his temple, into the ground, killing him. It's a gruesome story, the second gruesome story so far in the book of Judges. But the interesting question to me is, why, why does Jael do this? She's not an Israelite. She's not a follower of Yahweh, as far as we know. She's part of this other people group called the Kenites. What's her motivation for taking Sisera's life? Well, we're only speculating with this. The text just doesn't tell us. But, but I think we can, we can surmise, perhaps the most logical explanation is that somehow she has heard the stories of God's people. Perhaps she's heard of Yahweh. And certainly she would have heard on the other side of Sisera and how brutal he was, how oppressive he was. She would have heard the stories of how brutally he was treating these subject peoples. And simply out of a conviction to do what's right, and simply out of a conviction to stand up for those who are being oppressed and downtrodden and mistreated, JL takes this moment that comes along and she exercises tremendous courage and acts in that moment in a dramatic way, to put an end to this dominating tyrant and save the people of God. I think JL shows us that courage ultimately requires opportunity. True courage, real biblical courage, is steeped in the story of God. True courage emerges out of our own sense of brokenness and weakness. But JL shows us too that courage needs opportunity. And it come opportunities to demonstrate courage, they come and they go. There's a window of time. She only had a small window of time while Sisera was lying there sleeping and she took it. You'll have moments in your life to demonstrate courage. There's a time to have a particular conversation. There's a time to make a particular choice for your family or your workplace or your health. There's a moment that comes and then goes and God's spirit is perhaps prompting you even now. This is a time to exercise courage. It's not a time to shrink back. It's not a time to do nothing. This is a time like JL to step in and make a courageous decision and make a bold move. Rob Harley recalls the story that was told about an American B-17 bomber plane during World War II. It was returning home from a mission in Germany one night, returning across Europe to its base in the English countryside. And as it was uh, heading out over the German uh, skies, suddenly these two massive Nazi searchlights opened up the skies in front of this plane. And immediately a massive barrage of anti-aircraft missile fire started opening up from the ground below. The shells started exploding in front of the plane. And the crew knew what this meant. 
As soon as this happened, it was almost certainly the end of the plane, the end of anyone who was on board. They braced themselves and held their breath and said their prayers, and the shells started hitting the plane. Each one thudded the plane, rocked the plane. One hit the gas tank, one hit the wing of the plane, and they kept coming. But as the plane was, was rocked around by these shells, the men started to realize that there was no explosion. They had gaping holes in the wing, but nothing was exploding, and the plane kept on flying. They flew through the missile fire, and even though a lot of the shells had made target and hit the plane, the plane kept going and amazingly was able to clear the German airspace and got back to the English base. And as it landed limping along the runway, mechanics came out, poured all over the plane, trying to figure out what had happened, what had saved these uh, Air Force men. And one of them went, went around under the fuselage and got a little, pulled out pride, one of the shells that had sunk into the plane. And as he opened it up, he discovered that within this shell, there was no explosive device at all. The shell was empty. And other mechanics pulled other shells out from the plane, and they found every one of these shells was empty, except for one. One shell inside had a little piece of paper that had been rolled up. And as they unrolled the paper, they found on it was written in, in the Czech language, this is all we can do for you now. And what dawned on those airmen that night is that somewhere in a Nazi munitions factory, a group of Czechoslovakian slave laborers had made an incredibly courageous decision. Knowing full well the risks for sabotaging equipment, they had decided to make non-explosive shells that would do minimal damage to the Allies when they, when they were released. And they, even without knowing the people that they were going to be saving, had taken this unbelievable risk, not only of making non-explosive shells, but of letting them know how their redemption had come. I think of those Czechoslovakian workers a bit like JL. They may or may not have known God, we don't know, but they made an incredibly courageous move and stood up for what they knew to be right and acted that night on behalf of other people. That's what courage is, and it requires cost. There's always a cost. There's always going to be a sacrifice that you take and a risk that you make, and maybe right now God is calling you to exercise courage. It will come with some cost. It's not easy. It's not comfortable. You don't always feel peaceful about it. But courage may be required. So let's learn from Barak that we need to be immersed in the story of God's past and future faithfulness so that our courage is grounded in the great story of who God is and what he's doing for his people. Let's learn from Deborah that courage arises out of our own willingness to embrace our brokenness and our humility, to be real with God and others. That's the paradox of courage. And let's learn from JL and be inspired that courage seeks opportunity, that courage is expressed in particular moments. And let's lean into those opportunities to be courageous men and women out of a fear of God and a love for God and a desire to serve Him with our lives. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'd help us to be courageous people. Help us to see courage not just as mustering some kind of inner strength, but of trusting you with our lives fully, being completely secure in you. We know, Lord, that courage comes from being crucified with Christ so that it's not us who lives, but it's you. And I pray for anyone watching or listening that you are prompting to make a courageous move. Give them the strength that they need, Lord, that comes only from your spirit. 
Give them the boldness and the strength to take that step of courage and to do it humbly, to do it lovingly, to do it honestly before you. Make us courageous, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.